Welcome to the Chrisman Commentary Daily Mortgage News Podcast. I'm your host, Robbie Chrisman. Topics on today's episode include home sales and rates, my interview with Verisk's Kingsley Greenland on servicing for climate risk and technology solutions, and the economy's all right. Thanks to this week's podcast sponsor, Truve. Truve lets applicants verify income, employment, assets, insurance, and switch direct deposits. Unlock the open power of finance with Truve. Life is full of surprises, good and bad. Rates aren't a surprise. The U.S. Federal Reserve can only do so much about inflation. Geopolitics are a big deal, of course, and there's nothing our Fed, tasked with maintaining economic stability in this country, can do about those. Vendors and lenders are doing what they can, cutting over capacity and expenses. Capital market staffs everywhere are interested in which investors have pushed out the $2,500 Fannie and Freddie month-old home-ready credit, as well as non-QM, jumbo, co-issue, and servicing buyers. Everything revolves around finding ways to originate more. Existing home sales started 2024 on a positive note, increasing 3.1% in January, as single-family sales accounted for the entire gain. The 4 million unit annual pace of total resales represents a moderate rebound from December's near-cycle low and marks the fastest pace since last August. Sales declined 1.7% from the prior year, and the boost in sales is the anticipated catching up to the contracts that were signed late in the fourth quarter as mortgage rates fell. Some other data points of note from NARS report include the median existing home sales price climbing 5.1% from January 2023 to $379,100, the seventh consecutive month of year-over-year price gains. And the inventory of unsold existing homes increased 2.0% from December 2023 to $1.01 million at the end of January, or the equivalent of 3.0 months supply at the current monthly sales pace. And what about rates? For the week ending February 22nd, Freddie Mac's primary mortgage market survey reported that the average 30-year fixed-rate mortgage increased 13 basis points for the second straight week to 6.90%, the highest level since 6.95% in mid-December. Meanwhile, the 15-year rate increased 17 basis points to 6.29 after a 22 basis point jump previously, also its highest since 6.38% in the week ending December 14, 2023. The 15-year rate is important to pay attention to because with aggregate prepayment speeds in both Ginnie Mae and Fannie Mae 30-year mortgages currently trending around multi-decade lows, one source of relatively faster speeds for investors are Ginnie Mae 2 15-year agency MBS. Compared to a year ago, rates on the 30-year and 15-year fixed mortgage rates remain higher by 40 basis points and 53 basis points, but lower by 89 basis points and 74 basis points respectively from the cycle highs in October. Last month, rates had gotten to as low as 119 basis points and 127 basis points below the October highs. For today's interview, I wanted to welcome back to the show Verisk's Kingsley Greenland to talk about servicing for climate risk and technology solutions. He leads the mortgage risk analytics practice at Verisk Extreme Event Solutions, holding an MBA from IESE and an MA in economics from Boston University. This last year, it didn't seem like there were a ton of hurricanes or a bunch of wildfires in California. Are we out of the woods when it comes to 
this this climate risk. What's your thought about it? Obviously, there's ebbs and flows in, in nature's cycle, but um, where where are we today? Yeah, out of the woods, I don't think so. The problem <laughs> of <laughs> the built environment, houses, offices, multifamily still existing in harm's way hasn't changed, nor has the run-up in property values translated into replacement values, which are driving cases insurance premiums. But last year, in terms of natural hazards, saw around $60 billion in insured losses for what have historically been referred to as secondary perils, although that's not an appropriate framing. It's not the best we can do because the models and the damage uh, are as precise and as material as the as what you would infer as the, the primary perils. So if you look at the space and you have things like earthquakes and hurricanes, these low frequency, high severity events, it's not surprising that you would have some years where you have one or two or, or even no observations of that peril. Yet these severe storms, uh, those didn't let up. It's $60 billion in damage. You're seeing claims from hail, lightning, tornadoes. And if we look at the climate science, there isn't as much consensus as, as much of a direct line between thunderstorms and increasing global temperatures. But it's still a weather-based risk, which means the similar technologies apply to increase resilience and expect better outcomes, both on the banking and servicing side. Um, so there's still a lot of work to be done, and I do not think that the long-term risk has, has really changed just because we had a year or two or, or even three years of you know, no hurricanes or no headline uh, earthquakes, wildfires, et cetera. Yeah, I have some friends that are skeptics about these climate disasters. And what I would say to them, because it seems like there's no convincing some people that the mm -hmm. climate is changing, is that the natural disasters that do occur, do occur, say they're at the same pace and intensity they were 100 years ago. Mm -hmm. The property values are that much higher. So the damage totals are going to be that much higher. Are we seeing better construction and so that may mitigate in the future how, how do you model the risk and the overall uh, value proposition for these climate disasters as we move further into the 21st century well because much of this regulation is at the state level there's variance in how much legislation by way of building requirements can tie directly to resilience but there are regional differences in construction and by extension, uh, better outcomes for the same event. Uh, if you look at Florida concrete, fairly common, newer construction, but you're not going to see that in New England where the housing stock is very old. So if you take the same event and the same severity and apply it to a newer building, yeah, there's a case that uh, we can uh, create structures that have the right features, the right adaptation to a changing climate, but there's also a limit to that. Uh, if something is constructed in a flood zone, well, 
that tells me that when you have precipitation, it tends to go in that direction. So it's high likelihood that you're, you're going to have that same experience over and over again. Um, a separate issue, but you can look at the perils and sort of naively rank them and say which between something like wildfire, earthquake, and hurricane, which weather events have the highest potential to make adaptations and perform better? Well, wildfire is right for this because with proper uh, management, better real-time analytics, you don't have the same negative outcomes as if you just let things grow and sort of fall fall victim to a faster water cycle on top of increased vegetation growth from the prior season. That's the that's the path to the bad wildfire case. You have a lot of growth and it gets really dry. And then you have a typically man-made trigger, which causes a wildfire. Well, much of that is preventable uh, through basic things by not you know, having a lot of dry brush in the area, not having uh, trees or firewood stacked next to your house. And it sounds kind of obvious, but these things aren't, uh, it's low hanging fruit in the resilience lens. Even something like earthquakes where there's no that I'm familiar with, at least, no direct tie between increase in temperature and the earthquake severity. However, there is a relationship between building height and the damage that you see from the shake. So if you're on a fault line, it would make sense long term, if you insist on building there, to keep the height of the building within the bounds that you would expect better outcomes. Um, in terms of hurricanes, Building quality, uh, building density, all material, but that doesn't change the long-term drive for people to live in coastal cities. And there are a lot of good reasons for that, but I don't see that letting up. I see continued development uh, and interest in people living on the coast. And so you're about to speak at a MBA panel or mm -hmm. for MBA servicing on climate risk and tech solutions. What are the biggest points that you like to bring up when you have public speaking opportunities? Well, I think that it's a guidance toward lenders and servicers to focus on quantifying their weather risk in the near present climate. Uh, many of these, if you look at the larger banks that call them the big six that were asked to do a Fed climate scenario exercise, if you just look, they, they've invested heavily in climate scientists and risk analytics, as have the agencies, Fannie, Freddie, Ginny, uh, even the Fed. Now, they, they have views of risk on climate. So we started looking at 2050, but then people who started pulling in this data and these models uh, understood that, well, I don't know what my hurricane and wildfire risk is in 2024. So that's step one, is to use the existing models to find out what your average annual loss is and what your tail risk is, and take your own internal analytics to tie those loss metrics through your probability of default and loss given default models if you have them internally, or to simulate and run through scenarios of what would happen in a risk management lens through operations if your loans or servicing obligations were impacted by some of these synthetic events in a natural catastrophe catalog. 
what's a good place for companies to start today on the path toward uh, smarter data integration or tech solutions or, or mitigating climate risk in their servicing portfolios at the very least? Yeah, well, it's it's twofold. One, in the analytics split in this fashion, it's both pre-catastrophe and post-catastrophe. Pre-catastrophe, you have to deal with more uncertainty because these are high-frequency, I'm sorry, high-severity and low-frequency events, which means you're not going to have a comparable data set where you can look and say, well, how did I perform during Hurricane Katrina? You want to have something close, but so many things have changed. So you need to develop the vocabulary and expertise to look at your exposures across a range of natural perils, call it 10,000 from a catalog of synthetic events, and find which of your investors and servicing rights are most dependent on the availability and pricing of insurance. And you can use a catastrophe model output, something like average annual loss or tail risk, to measure the dependence on that insurance support assumption. And then look at that loss estimate through your familiar risk metrics of things like loan to value and debt service coverage. So if you have a borrower with debt service coverage that's on the margin and they're highly levered, well, you know that the same increase in insurance premium or increase in deductible, just general risk from an exogenous shock like weather, they're not going to perform as well, all else equal, as someone who has very low debt service coverage, very low leverage, uh, and is overall more resilient and, for example, a uh, expensive property versus something that's manufactured housing. So you can make these slices and dices in advance to get a sense of when the event occurs, where am I most likely going to need that extra attention in terms of contacting the borrower, repairs that I expect to make, inspection responsibilities, communication with the investor, all of those processes, you'll have better outcomes if you prepare in advance by identifying the most at-risk properties. And then if you want to transition to post-catastrophe, we can do that. Do you have an interim question? Well, I was going to say that it's good that I bought a family of snakes to alert me about earthquakes in California. But yes, let's talk, <laughs> let's talk post-catastrophe. It's probably a better path than wherever I was going. Right. So when you don't have this information up front. You're doing a lot of simulation for things that haven't yet occurred. And as the event in question gets closer and closer, you can narrow down which of the existing events in the catalog are most likely to reflect actuality. So just for an estimate, two days out, let's say I can take a catalog that was originally 10,000 events, two days out, one day out, narrow that down to the five events in the catalog and then say, okay, if th that's so much more information, right? Starting with anything can happen because it's a random process to, well, now I have things like forward speed, wind speed, uh, central pressure, and I have enough information to say, what is this hurricane going to look like tomorrow? What is it likely to look like and how is that going to pass through? So then 
transition in the event has actually happened. Again, this is an analytics problem in that you need to look at 3D image differences between what we'd call a blue sky image and a gray sky. Blue sky is nothing that's going on. You know, it's just a steady state. And next to it, the computer will compare the image of the post-disaster, transpose that on top of the nothing has happened grid. And the result is that you can get a sense of, is a tarp there? Did a tree fall? What kind of damage exists to the property? And then if you did your work up front to make sure that you have open lines of communication, your high-risk borrower, that you checked credit, checked investor responsibilities as a servicer, well, then you have that additional information to say, okay, where did the damage actually occur? And are those the borrowers where I expected to have issue or is it somebody new? All helpful, which will lead you to faster resolution, uh, arguably less cash outflow for repairs and servicing advance if you're able to move first instead of dealing with things like demand surge where post-event you have material increases in cost. Everyone's running for the same goods through scarcity. Um, so using that computer comparison of pre- and post-event imagery, you can get these very, very close to real-time analytics of the actual damage of the event. And then if you were prepared correctly in advance, you have a good case that all else equal, you have a better outcome. Finally, before I let you go today, Kingsley, I think mm -hmm. that I first spoke with you pretty recently after you had taken this role, and it's been over a year now. But how's it been going for you? Have you enjoyed it? Uh, how has it been at, at Barisk in general? A fantastic company. I, I really love the opportunity to find a relationship between what we know in science, technology, and how we can integrate those with uh, what may be kind of a stale industry, right? There's not, if you look around the space of lending, it's not known for being tech forward, yet that tells me that there's a lot of opportunity there to lead to better risk outcomes by, frankly, mirroring and matching what insurers have done for a long time because they put so much money into getting the very best risk assessment available. And now that these new issues have emerged, in the origination and banking side, meaning you know the same dollar of risk that you used to be able to rely on an insurer to cover, now they're putting some of that back to the property owner and the lender. Well, it makes sense to me that you would just take the same technology, transpose it, and get the same view of risk. So really exciting stuff. I think there's a lot of growth. Uh, I think that there's you know, a bit of a conflict in that I'd like to see all these things just at a macro level resolved. I want everyone to be able to get insurance coverage at a good price. Yet, looking out over the horizon, I frankly see more stress than resolution, at least in the next couple of years. Well, I wish you luck, and I'm sure I'll talk to you uh, sooner than uh, a couple of years from now. I look forward to having you back <laughs> on the show, and uh, thank you for making the time today, Kingsley. Yeah, likewise, Robbie. Appreciate it. Turning to the economy, and therefore the bond markets, and therefore mortgage rates, the implied likelihood of a Fed rate cut in May continued to fall yesterday, after U.S. jobless claims fell to the lowest level in a month. 
and Fed officials warned of easing too much on improving inflation. Vice Chair Jefferson said that it will likely be appropriate to begin cutting rates later this year, and that he's cautiously optimistic about the way inflation is evolving. His main risks to predictable Fed policy in 2024 are resilient consumer spending, robust employment, and elevated geopolitical risks. It is important to remember that not only does consumer spending serve as an excellent recession indicator, but it also plays an underrated role in Fed policy. The bullish U.S. economy has forced investors in 2024 to walk back bets on rate cuts. Pricing in Fed funds futures now implies three rate cuts for the year. The Fed minutes released earlier this week revealed that, quote, in discussing the policy outlook, participants judged that the policy rate was likely at its peak for the tightening cycle. Today's calendar has no economic releases or Fed speakers scheduled, which is music to the ears of those market participants that are out of the office with many schools on vacation. Accordingly, trade volume should be on the lighter side. Treasuries, though, will likely be seeing some setup for the $169 billion in month-end auctions next week, with $63 billion two-year and $64 billion five-year notes auctioned on Monday, followed by $42 billion of seven-year notes on Tuesday. With no economic data on today's calendar, we begin the day with agency MBS prices, little change from Thursday evening, and the 10-year yielding 4.32 after closing yesterday at 4.33%. Let's wrap up with a joke and some housekeeping. A young co-ed, very attractive, wore an extra tight blouse and shirt which magnified her charms. She wriggled up to her professor after class and cooed, Professor, anything I can do to pass your exam with high marks? The professor smiled at her and asked, Anything? She replied, Anything at all. Okay, the professor said. Study. Thanks again to this week's podcast sponsor, Truve. Truve lets applicants verify income, employment, assets, insurance, and switch direct deposits. Unlock the power of open finance with Truve. If you have any questions about the podcast or sponsoring opportunities, send me an email at robbie at robchrisman.com. Visit robchrisman.com for more information on our industry partners, access to archived commentaries, and how to subscribe to the daily mortgage news and commentary. To listen to or download past episodes of this podcast, search Mortgage News on any platform you get your podcast from.